Well, let me invite you to turn to Genesis 22. <clears throat> if you're just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. We've come this morning to chapter 22. There's a, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the blue one in front of you. And if you're looking at that one, you can find our passage on page 18. Genesis 22. I'm going to read it for us here. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Buzz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, 
Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Machah. This is the word of the Lord. You guys are going to be sad when we are done with Genesis, and I don't have to read those names anymore. But I will not be. Well, this morning, as I thought about our passage, it made me reflect a lot on just, you can't help but think about what's going on in your your day-to-day life. And so this Thursday, obviously, is Thanksgiving. So I was thinking about this passage through the lens of Thanksgiving. I thought, okay, here we have Thursday. We have this whole day that we set aside to celebrate and thank God for all that he has done for us, right? We reflect on how he's helped us, what he's given us, and how he's been faithful for another year. And for one day, we are focused on thanks, thanking him for all he has provided. And it's great. And yet... How many of the other 364 days do we find ourselves wondering if we'll have what we need? Will God come through for me? Will he supply what is necessary in this situation, in this relationship, in this trial, in this decision I have to make? Thursday, we'll, be all, we'll look back and we'll say, God has done so much. He's given, he's given, he's provided, he's provided. But then it's so easy on Friday to wake up and say, but will he do it again? Will he provide? And I think this one question acts as a trunk that so many of our struggles branch out from. Will God provide what I need? Think about it with me. Isn't that really the question behind all our fears? and all our worries, and all our anxieties? Doesn't it really come down to the fact that we worry that God won't give me what I need? Isn't that what we see whenever we envy or struggle with contentment? Behind those, isn't it us saying that God is failing to give me what I need? He hasn't provided. I'm envious because they have something I think I need and want, but God hasn't given it. I'm, I'm discontent because there's something I know is out there that I don't have. So God has not provided. When we try to seize control of our lives and just say, you know what, I'm going to do things my way. Isn't it because we don't trust that God and his ways will prove to be enough? I would argue that whenever we sin, we're really saying that we're not sure God will provide what I need to be happy to be secure, and to be satisfied. Now the good news is that for people like you and me who struggle with that, who struggle to believe God will give us what we need, Genesis 22 is a loud, clear, and unequivocal answer to that question. And this answer is, the Lord will provide. So I want to look at our passage this morning in three scenes. There's There's a lot of different ways people break this down, but I think the author actually gives us some hints about how to view this passage. If you look at your story again, there are three times that someone calls to Abraham and he responds, here I am. 
And these three conversations that ensue kind of help shape the three scenes here. It's also helpful, you'll notice, that each of these three scenes ends with the phrase, they went together. Okay, so go ahead and put up. Here's how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at verses 1 to 6. I'm calling that section the test. Then in verses 7 to 8, we hear the question. And then verses 9 to 19, we get the answer. Now, you notice that verses 20 to 24 are not up there. I, we're not going to say much about it, but I am going to touch on it at the end. I'll explain when I get there. So let's jump in, looking at these three headers. Let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So here in verse 1, we get the key to understanding what's happening in this chapter. The first thing it tells us there is God tested Abraham. Now, we know what tests are, right? Kids, you know all too well. In, in school, we're used to tests that teachers give us tests to see what knowledge someone has. It reveals how much they know. Or some people might run a marathon as a test of their endurance. How does it test it? Well, it shows how much they can endure. Well, in the same way, in the Bible, God often tests his people. And when he does, what he tests is our faith. He tests us to see how much trust is in us. How far will we trust him? It's meant to get beyond, these tests, they're meant to get beyond what we say we believe. Or even what we sing we believe. And reveal what's really in us. See, God has two main purposes in testing us. And we see both of these purposes in Deuteronomy 8, where it reflects on when God led his people through the wilderness. I want you to hear these two purposes. First, he says in Deuteronomy 8, 2, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, there it is, why? To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he says, okay, God led you through the wilderness. He put you through this test. Why? Because he wanted to know what was in your heart. Would they trust him? Would they obey his word? But the testing, he says, wasn't only to reveal. There was a second purpose. A few verses later in 8.16, he says this. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, And test you, why? To do you good in the end. So God's testing isn't just to reveal what's in us, it's to do good to us. So all throughout the Bible, and you will testify to this if you follow Jesus for even an hour, tests are hard, but they're ultimately helpful. And here in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. Okay, so what's His test. What's the test we see? Verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, it's really important that we remember Abraham doesn't know this is a test. 
we do as we're reading it. And that's, I think that's actually kind of God and Moses as the author here to tell us up front. But Abraham has no idea. Because if you've ever walked through trial, obviously, wouldn't they be easier if God told you right up front, hey, I'm going to do this thing in your life? It's a test. Okay, I just want to see how you're going to respond. So I'm, I'm in control of this. I'm working on it. I just want to see something. Then we think, okay, okay, it's this test. I can handle this. I'll get through it. But that's not the way it works when God tests us. Rarely do we know when a test is occurring. And so imagine if we're reading, we've been following Abraham now since chapter 12. And imagine if it didn't tell us in verse 1 this was a test. Just imagine it skipped right into the story. What if it just said, God said to Abraham, take your son. This would be shocking. I mean, our jaws would drop. We'd say, just last chapter, Abraham finally got the son he'd been waiting 25 years for. I mean, the son through whom God promised offspring as numerous as the stars. The son in whom all the nations would be blessed. He's, he, he just came last chapter. And now, I mean, we, we might have been picturing this buildup of, okay, where's it going to go from here? And instead of it building up, he says, sacrifice him. No one saw this coming. If you're reading this for the first time, there is not a single person who says, oh, I bet I know where this is going. I bet in the next chapter, God asked him to sacrifice him. No one. And we can only imagine the pain and the confusion that Abraham felt here. I mean, feel the agony of each of these words that God piles up, cutting Abraham's heart deeper as God told him what he must sacrifice. It says, your son. Your only son, whom you love. We can only imagine what Abraham's feeling. Now, it says your only son. And if you've been tracking, you might say, wait a minute. What about Ishmael? Well, Isaac's the only son now because Ishmael was sent away for good. He's no longer a part of these promises. He's, he's not in the family, so to speak. Isaac is it. There are no others. There's no more backup plan. There's no what ifs. And he's, he's not just Abraham's only hope. He's Abraham's joy and his delight. I mean, this, imagine you've been waiting for 25 years for something and now you have it. I mean, what you savor each day, just like, wow, he's here. And now God tests him to see how far Abraham would go to obey him. He asked the most difficult thing he could possibly ask to see whether Abraham would trust him. Or if he would draw a line and say, no God, that's too far. I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a minute. Where do you draw the line with God? Is there something that if God called you to do, or got something God called you to relinquish, you know in your heart, I don't think I would let that go. If it came right down to obeying what God called us to, or giving that up, I, I think I need to hold on to it. What if obedience to him meant giving up your job? What if it meant giving up your home? What if obedience meant giving up a dream of what you thought, maybe even hoped, your life would look like? 
What if it meant giving up your picture of what retirement would look like? Or giving up your comfort? What we're meant to wrestle with as we see this chapter is asking ourselves that hard question, is anything off limits to God in my life? Where do you draw the line and say, God, I'll do whatever you say up to here. But this, that's too far. Well, that line is what God wanted to see from Abraham. He wanted to see if he had that line. And notice how the language here, as he he poses this test, how it intentionally connects us back to the beginning of Abraham's journey of faith in chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1, remember, God called Abraham to do something that he didn't understand. He says, leave your home, leave your family, leave all that you've known and cherished, and go to the land God would show him. What do we find here near the end of Abraham's career? Here in chapter 22, God calls Abraham to go to the land he will tell him about, give up what he most cherished, and do something he didn't understand. And the question underneath both the call in chapter 12 and the call in chapter 22 is, will Abraham trust God to provide? If he has to give up everything else, is God enough for him? In verses 3 and 4, we see then that though it had to be devastating, Abraham obeys God. He obeys him promptly. He gets up early in the morning, loads everything up, and leaves with Isaac and two young men's servants. Now, it doesn't tell us anything, and I think this is instructive, that it doesn't say anything about the mental and emotional anguish Abraham must be feeling. It doesn't belabor it. It doesn't make it really dramatic. Instead, what the passage focuses on is the fact that he obeys. And in verse 5, then, they arrive at the place, and Abraham tells the young men, You stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, did you hear the hint of faith in Abraham's words? It's subtle, but significant. He tells the men, We, Isaac and me, we will go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Now, is Abraham just lying? Some people argue, I don't think so. I think Abraham's words here are words of hope and faith. And we're going to see that bear out later. Because Abraham right now has no idea how. But he's trusting that God will bring them both back. Then at this point, Abraham takes the fire and the knife in his hand. But it says he lays the wood on Isaac's back. Now what's interesting about that is that there is a a pre-Christian Jewish teaching. So hear that. Pre-Christian, before Jesus has come on the scene, Jewish teaching that when it looks at Genesis 22, the writer says, oh, what this is like is like a condemned man carrying his cross. So it's not a Christian later trying to connect dots. It's a Jew before Jesus has come looking at Isaac with the wood on his back saying, you know what that reminds me of? That looks a lot like a condemned man carrying a cross. So it should not surprise us when we get to our New Testaments and we read of Jesus in John 19 that he is led up the mountain bearing his own cross on his back. 
That's just one little glimpse. We're going to get a lot more here. But then our first scene ends with the Father and the Son going on together, approaching the appointed time alone, just the two of them. Now, we can only imagine what this, this walk was like. I mean, we know Abraham's mind is churning and his heart is just bubbling and seething with all kinds of emotions. And the silence has got to be tense. Finally, Isaac breaks it in verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, Isaac's doing what we would all do, right? He's, he's running through the checklist in his mind. Okay, we got fire, yes, all right. We got wood, yes. Uh, wait a minute. There's one thing glaringly missing. So he asks this question that's loaded with so much freight. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And I just want you to imagine that question landing on Abraham. How, how do you answer that? What, what can he say? And I think what he does say, I think his response is one of the most poignant parts of the story. In verse 8, Abraham says to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now again, those who want to like be contrarians and see this in the worst possible light, they might just say, I think Abraham's just being evasive. It's kind of his, his non-answer answer. I'll just speak in platitudes and that way maybe I don't have to tell Isaac what's really coming. But I think we'll see later in the text that this is actually a statement of faith. Abraham really believes and trusts that God will provide the lamb that is needed. And what I want us to notice is Abraham's focus in his answer. Because I think it's so helpful and instructive for you and me and our faith. Notice that Abraham doesn't focus in his answer on how or when, but on who and what. Not how and when, but on who and what. He doesn't know how God will provide. No idea. He doesn't know when he'll provide. He's thinking God's going to provide a lamb, but I'm sure he's also thinking it would have been nice if he'd done so already. And he's probably scared. I mean, he's probably just, any minute now, God, any minute, is we're, this is really close to the deadline, God. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. But what he does know is that God is trustworthy. That's who he is. And he knows what he'll do. He will provide. So this morning, I'm encouraging you, think about your own struggles. And my guess is there is a multitude sitting in this room. Some may be known. There's probably lots that nobody in here knows but you. And as you're walking through those struggles, your own tests that you might be going through, where might you need to shift your focus? Where are you fixated on knowing how? How will you do this, God? I need to understand how. Or where are you fixated on when? When is this thing going to happen? When will I get it? And instead, let your heart be refixated on who, who God is, and what He's promised to do. This is part of what it means to walk by faith. That's been the banner over this whole section with Abraham, is walking by faith. 
Because in the equation of faith, we often don't understand how doing what God commands will lead to what God promised. Right? We, we just don't see it. We, we plug in our own answers in this equation saying, okay, if I do this, I really think it's going to come out like this. And that's not what God promised. Or we work the problem the other way. Say, okay, if I'm going to get what God promised, I think I need to do this. But that's not what God commands. When we plug our own answers in, the equation doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But even when it doesn't, we obey in faith. Why? Because we know that you and I, on our best days, are only doing basic fleshly math. Well, God is doing gospel calculus. He has all kinds of variables that we know nothing about. He's told us the answer to the equation. Those are his promises. He's saying, this is what will happen. You know this is how it's going to come out, but we don't know all the variables that will add up to that. Only God knows how he'll arrive at that answer, and so we trust and obey just like Abraham. He doesn't know how or when God will provide the lamb, but he knows that God promised that through Isaac, his offspring will be named. So he trusts God's going to do something, sometime, to provide what he needs. This is key. Abraham has complete certainty about God and his promises, and he has complete openness with the details. What is he sure of? God will provide. And so they went, both of them together. Then we come to verse 9. The fateful time has arrived. Look there. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now we don't know exactly how Isaac understood or processed all that was going on. It doesn't tell us. But we do know that at some point, maybe after the question was asked, at some point it became clear to him he was going to be the sacrifice. How do we know? Well, keep in mind, Abraham here is 115 years old, give or take. While Isaac is about 15. Isaac is younger, quicker, and stronger. That's why the wood was put on his back. Because he was strong enough to carry it where Abraham wasn't. So surely, the picture here is not one of Abraham binding Isaac against his will. He doesn't apprehend his son, and while he's thrashing about, lash his hands together, and Isaac is begrudgingly thrown on this pile of wood. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, what we see is Isaac trusted his father and allowed himself to be bound. Even when it made no sense to him, and this seemed like no good could possibly come of this, and it was probably going to be painful, and it seemed like it was going to lead to his Death. But because he loved and trusted his father, Isaac obeyed him even to the point of death. So at this point, if you haven't already, just stop. Just stop. It's like if you've 
If you've ever been on a walk somewhere, you've been running through like a nature area, sometimes you get so engrossed in conversation or if you're running, trying to stay alive in my case, but you just, you get so preoccupied that you don't stop and just realize that what you're looking at, what surrounds you. So just stop for a minute and take this scene in with me. Here, you have the son humbly obeying his father by willingly offering up his life while the father takes in his hand the knife to put to death the long-awaited son of promise, his only son whom he loves. And with that hand raised, ready to fall upon his son, though, we hear the third time a voice calls to Abraham. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. I almost wonder there, he's thinking, what else? What could this be? But God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I, you can almost picture Abraham here collapsing in just relief and thankfulness. I mean, in his heart, the knife is in his hand and it's raised. So in his heart and in his mind, he's already lost his son. He's not wavering. He's, he's not like backing out. So in his mind, the act hadn't been committed, but he'd done it in his heart. And now, against all odds, he gets him back. The son that he thought he lost is back as though from the dead. And why did God stay his hand? Because Abraham had passed the test. His heart had been revealed. He showed that he truly feared God. He trusted him. He obeyed his word no matter the cost. But don't just stop there at obedience. Why did Abraham obey? Even though it was painfully hard. Because he believed God's promises. Listen to Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now don't miss in that passage that it refers to Abraham as he who had received the promises. That's important. Why? Because what did Abraham know? He knew that God promised through Isaac his offspring would be named. He, that's what he knew. He didn't know how that could happen if he offered him up. But he trusted that God would make it all work out. Because God, he knew what God promised. So he obeyed by faith. And this wasn't simply mechanical, dutiful Submission to God. This was hope-filled faith in God and his promises. A faith in a God that he says, if it takes bringing him back from the dead, he can do that. And we know from chapter 15 that this faith, this kind of faith is what made Abraham righteous. God counted him righteous apart from any obedience. He didn't jump through enough hoops. He didn't pass enough tests. And then God said, okay, you're good. I, I will count you righteous. 
He was credited as righteousness by faith. But now chapter 22 comes along as, as the other side of the coin. And it shows us that the faith that is counted as righteousness is always a faith that obeys. Abraham's faith was revealed and demonstrated by his obedience. This is what James tells us in James 2. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James is looking at the story. He's saying, yes, Abraham was righteous by faith. Faith was what was credited to him as righteousness. And he says that scripture was fulfilled through Abraham's obedience of offering Isaac. What does he mean fulfilled? It means you see it. The faith that he was credited with in 15 is now revealed in 22. God's like, yes, there it is. And for all the world to see, we can look at what faith looks like. What Abraham shows us is that trusting God always means obeying God. Obedience is how faith is shown. Friends, we can say over and over that we trust God. I'm a Christian. I I have faith. I'm a person of faith. I believe. We can have faith bumper stickers, faith things on your Facebook wall. We can say it over and over. But the proof is in whether we actually obey what he tells us in his word. Remember, that's what tests do. They reveal our faith by calling us to obey even when it's hard. And Abraham passed the test by his obedience of faith. But let's go back to our passage. Because after this incredibly good news, the fact remains there still needed to be a sacrifice. So if not Isaac, where would a sacrifice come from? Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God himself provided the sacrifice. And just like earlier, I asked you to imagine the anguish that Abraham was felt. If you're a parent, it's hard to read this chapter without just your stomach nodding up. And like, as you can't help but envision, like, what if I had, it makes you want to be sick. So we've imagined the anguish, but now I want you to be on the other side. And I want you to imagine the joy that was felt because of those two words at the end of that verse there, where it says, Instead of. Oh, what, what good news is in the word instead of. Picture Abraham and Isaac looking at this ram as it's burning on the altar with tears in their eyes, shaking with joy and wonder that it wasn't Isaac that was there on the altar. What relief and deep thankfulness that, it was, that God had provided the lamb as a substitute instead of Isaac. They could look on the sacrifice that was made and think, it was him. He was there. It, it was supposed to be him. But then God said, no, I'll provide a substitute. Friends, this is what we're meant to feel when we look at the cross. We all belonged on the altar because of our sin. And yet... God provided a substitute. Jesus willingly 
offered himself and took our place so that the Father's knife and the fire of his wrath fell on Christ instead of us. The penalty that should have been ours was paid by Jesus instead. So when we look at the cross, just like Abraham and Isaac would have done that day, we should shake with joy and relief and wonder that it's not us. That's why we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. We sing, Christ the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life. Laid with faith upon the altar, father's joy and only son, there salvation was provided Oh, what full and boundless love. And this salvation that was provided was provided in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided for himself the Lamb. And like Abraham, God the Father did not withhold his son, his only son whom he loves. But unlike with Isaac, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And as we talked a couple weeks ago about that verse, if he didn't spare his own son, his only son whom he loves, but gave him up for us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If he provided the lamb, he'll provide everything we need. And that's why we see in verse 14, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. See, yes, this story is about Abraham passing the test. But the mountain is not called Abraham trusted. It's called the Lord will provide. Because even more than it's about Abraham's faith, it's about the God who is faithful. The God who is worthy of our trust and obedience. What we see is that the God who tests is also the God who provides. Now there's one other thing to notice quickly about this place that Abraham names. Back in verse 2, it told us that God called him to go to the land of Moriah. The only other mention we have in the Bible of Moriah is in 2 Chronicles 3.1 where it says this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So two things stick out there. One is pretty obvious. Mount Moriah, well it says the temple, God's house, was built on a mountain in Moriah. Quite possibly the same one we have here in Genesis 22. But there's another connection that's more subtle and less easy to see. In that verse from 2 Chronicles, <clears throat> it mentions that Mount Moriah was where the Lord appeared to David. It says he appeared to David at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Well, I'm wondering if you remember what happened there. It's okay if not, but it's not one of the popular Bible stories. But what happened at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite was David had sinned greatly against the Lord. And God was bringing judgment on his people Israel. And as he's bringing judgment on his people, we read this in 1 Chronicles 21. It says, 
And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So do you hear it? God's angel, in this situation with David, God's angel is standing with a sword raised, ready to lower it on Jerusalem, destroying the people because of their sin when it says the Lord saw and told the angel, it's enough, stay your hand. And guess what David does right after this in the story? He offers a burnt offering. He offers a substitute. Do you see a pattern here? God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son that he loves, but provides a substitute instead. And in the same place, he tells the angel to destroy Jerusalem because of their sin, but provides a substitute instead. Put those two together. And in the same place, God stays his hand from destroying a sinful people by providing his only beloved son as the substitute. Christ the story, his the glory from beginning to end. It's all pointing us to what Jesus accomplished. And this morning, just let the amazement wash over you at the wonder of God's amazing plan of redemption. God has always shown mercy to his people by providing a lamb as a substitute. And when Jesus shows up, is it any wonder that John recognizes him as the true lamb of God, the substitute who takes away the sin of the world? He was slain, and by his blood, this lamb ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, because in him all the nations shall be blessed just as he promised Abraham. In fact, that's where our passage goes, to God's promise. And in verse 16, God speaks to Abraham again. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now remember we said at the beginning that tests are not only to reveal what's in us, but to do good to us. And here, after he passes the test, God does good to Abraham by swearing an oath to guarantee his promises. It's important we see that God's not simply repeating his promises. It's not just a reaffirmation. He's actually raising the bar. He's doubling down on his commitment. Just like when we would swear to tell the truth, right? You do it, you, you swear by something greater, something more precious. That's why you put your hand on the Bible. You say like, yes, I'm going to tell the truth, but on top of my word, you also have, I'm swearing an oath on something greater. Well, God has nothing and no one greater or more precious to swear by. So he swears by himself and says, by myself, I swear I will surely, this is a new word, surely bless you. 
I will surely multiply you. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Hebrews 6 talks about this oath right here. And it tells us why it's good news for you and me. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Friends, we have strong encouragement to hold fast our hope because God didn't just make promises to Abraham. He didn't just make promises that you and I, we talked about last week, we are children of the promise. Like we are heirs of the promise. So like that's great. He says, yes, I made you promises, but that's not all I did. He guaranteed it with an oath. He swore by himself the greatest, most precious thing in existence. He says, I swear by me, those promises are happening. There's no way this promise is getting broken. God is faithful and he will provide all that he promises. Finally, one quick thought on those last verses at the end of the chapter, 20 to 24. These verses their main thing is they're serving as a bit of transition to the end of Abraham's story. After this, we're going to see Sarah dies and then Abraham dies. So we're kind of winding down. This was the, the pinnacle of Abraham's walk of faith here. <clears throat> but these last few verses, they also show us something else. They show us how large and strong his brother's line was. His brother who's not the line of promise. So while Abraham... <laughs> had just one son that he waited 25 years for, that, he, that just barely survived, almost dying. One flimsy son. His brother has 12. He's strong. He's thriving. Those not in the promises, they're, they're doing great. One writer explains the point being made this way. He says, God's chosen people here appear fragile, Few, flimsy, and unimpressive beside the vigorous growth of the non-promise line. He goes on, the author says, let that sink in. God's people so often seem weak and nondescript against the success and achievement and power of the world around them. But the point is what? The point is that we don't need to worry when Christ's people seem small and weak and insignificant. Why? Because we have God's promises. The promise of a kingdom that starts like a mustard seed. The promises of a God who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. And if he didn't spare his own son, he's not going to withhold any good thing. He will supply our every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, friends, whatever test you may be facing this morning, 
we can trust the same thing that Abraham trusted. The Lord will provide. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for that reality, that you are faithful to your promises and you always provide what we need. Lord, we confess that there is many, many times we don't agree with that. We feel as though there's something we need to have that we don't or something we think would be good for us that we don't. And yet, Lord, we know from the truth of your word that you always keep your promises, that no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Because you've given us Jesus as our shepherd, we shall not want. Lord, so help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that all these other things will be added to us. You've provided the lamb, the substitute, who takes away the sin of the world. How will you not provide all the lesser things we need? Help us trust you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.